welcome. You're listening to a sermon podcast from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. Well, as I mentioned, today we're continuing our Radiant Life Eastertide series. Throughout this series, we're talking about the way in which the Spirit of God wants to cultivate those attributes listed in that passage in us. Not that we would try hard to be that way, to be humble or kind or compassionate, but that we would be the kind of people who are learning how to cooperate with the Holy Spirit as he works in us. We're learning how to lean into him and be with him in the moments of our day. And we're inviting him to transform us in the inner being so that those attributes of compassion, kindness, humility, and so forth will naturally and routinely flow out of us as we live our lives in this world. And today, we're talking about gentleness. And it dawned on me, as I started thinking about our topic today, that over the last five or six years, I have talked about gentleness more times than I had in the previous 25 years. Just kind of hit me. I thought, we've been down this road before. I've talked about this several times. And indeed, more times the last five or six years than the combined total of the previous 25. And I think the reason for this is partly personal. Maybe put it this way. I've seen the consequences of my own non-gentleness enough. And finally, it's convinced me that non-gentleness is not the Jesus way. And it is certainly not a good way. And while it bears fruit, none of that fruit is good. But I also think a reason why this has come up so much is more generally and culturally and within the Christian community as a whole in the past five or six years, the tension, the fighting, the division, and the defensiveness of our world, of our nation has been rapidly rising. And so an outbreak of gentleness, if we can call it that, seems to be desperately needed. But if we could somehow distribute truth serum right now, maybe you get a little bit of it with your communion elements when you came in. If we had a little truth serum right now, and then we were to inject the truth serum and share our unfiltered, unedited thoughts, I would be willing to wager that a decent percentage of us do not think too highly of gentleness. We might call it the fruitcake of character qualities. Few people like it, but not that many. Some of us are gentle, but for most of us, as we say, it's not who we are. I mean, maybe it's good to be gentle around younger children, but in this competitive world, I mean, gentleness only is going to take somebody so far. I would wager a good number of us, when aided by this hypothetical truth serum, would see gentleness or would admit that we see gentleness as more of a weakness than a strength. It's okay to a point, but we have a way of putting rather stringent limits on gentleness. Whether in our marriage or in some family dynamic we may have or in a work context or as we think about the larger political theater, our mindset seems to me to be that at some point, gentleness reaches its end, and it just doesn't cut it. So if Julie bugs me in some minor way, well, sure, I should respond to that with gentleness and seek to be like Jesus in that. But if she asks me to clean the kitchen while I'm in the middle of watching a rerun of the 2012 Rose Bowl, I mean, enough is enough. I have rights in this relationship. And such absurdities 
are beyond the parameters of gentleness. So we limit it. We put restrictions around it. And I would suggest that when it comes to gentleness, it's possible, maybe even probable, we're seriously off track. It's astounding how much the Bible says about the people of God being a gentle presence in this broken and undivided world with each other and as we interact with the culture. Gentle is to be our posture in this world. Gentle is to be our approach in tense and difficult situations. Gentle is to be our response to insults, our response to attacks, our response to criticisms. Not because gentle looks good, but because gentle reflects the character of the one we claim to follow. And how different would this world be if there was an inexplicable outbreak of gentleness? How different would your workplace be, or your home, or your marriage, or your family culture? How different would these settings be if gentleness were to replace harshness and defensiveness? So let's talk about the genius of gentleness. It's difficult to define gentleness, and it is one of those qualities that is probably better seen and done than explained. Tenderness might be one picture that captures what gentleness is. Like a shepherd with his sheep is one of the biblical images of gentleness. The ancient philosopher Aristotle said gentleness is the opposite of anger. And gentleness, he said, is the desired mean or midpoint between over here, a hot-tempered person, violent, angry, too much anger, and over here, an apathetic person, no feeling, no response. So for Aristotle, those things that stir up anger are the playing field for gentleness. So gentleness replaces fighting back. Gentleness replaces the urge to retaliate. Gentleness replaces this idea of getting even, paying back, being harsh. And it is especially helpful, I think, for us to think of gentleness as replacing defensiveness. And we'll talk about this as we go along. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and here's this phrase, and always to be gentle toward everyone. That's our all-inclusive statement, all-inclusive admonition. Always be gentle toward everyone. And keep in mind, we're talking in this series about putting on the new clothes of the kingdom in the language of Colossians 3. The new self that is under renovation and in the process of becoming like Jesus himself. So we're not talking about acting gently toward everyone or summoning the strength in the moment to pretend we are gentle when we're really actually ticked off. We're talking about the Spirit of God forming us into people who are inwardly gentle. And this inward gentleness then manifests itself outwardly in various situations. In the language of Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And at last count, 
I think I had 47,212 examples proving the truthfulness of that verse in my marriage alone. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. See, the genius of gentleness is that it diffuses tension. The genius of gentleness is that it fosters relationship instead of fracturing relationship. And as people of Jesus then, in terms of living this out, we respond gently toward those who hurt us instead of retaliating against them. So we give the opposite of what we receive. When defensiveness rises in us over some ego slight or status injury, we surrender the impulse to get even to the Spirit of God in the moment or in the moments that follow, and then we respond gently. This is the kind of person we're being invited to become. It probably sounds crazy. I know it sounds crazy. It probably sounds really unattainable. How in the world could we ever become the kind of person who would do that? Well, it is unattainable, and it is crazy if all we're doing in the moment is trying hard not to get mad. One other part of the genius of gentleness is that the bigger and stronger and more powerful we are as an individual or as a group of people, the more we need gentleness. And I want us to just let that sink in for a second. This is a deeply rooted biblical theme. The bigger, the stronger, the more powerful we are in whatever setting we're in, the more we need gentleness. So executives need it more than those who work for them because they have power. Wealthy people need it more than the poor because wealthy people in that economic sense have power. And we could go on and on. Where there is power, there has to be the cultivation of gentleness. This will surprise none of you who have been around here for a few days. But for the bulk of my life, gentleness has been quite elusive to me. It's not exactly been my default response to slights or to criticisms or to my will not being done on earth as it is in my head. My natural response has not been, oh, be gentle about that. I'm competitive. I can yell really loud. I can argue quite convincingly at times. And I don't exactly have a natural presence that says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. But the longer I seek to live in the way of Jesus, the longer that this amazing vision sits out there, we read things in Colossians 3 and we say, my, what would it be like to be that kind of person? What would it be like to be the kind of person in a tense situation, whether it be at home or in the community, where the natural response, the routine response, would be to be gentle. So the longer I seek to live in the way of Jesus, the more I realize I need to keep growing in gentleness. Let's talk about Jesus, the gentle. Jesus drives home this connection between power on the one hand and gentleness on the other. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, he says of himself, all things have been committed to me by my Father. What he's saying here is, I'm the center of it all. I hold it all together. Or to use it this way, I am most powerful. So, Jesus continues, he then says, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And here's the phrase. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So get this. The one to whom all things have been committed, the most powerful one in describing himself says, I am gentle and humble in heart. Now, is that not a bit of a mind blow? When you think of those first words and descriptions of who Jesus is or was, I'm not so sure too many of us think he was gentle. We may not connect power with gentleness, but he actually does. As the one who was most powerful, he describes himself as gentle. In 1 Peter chapter 2, and verse 23, it says, When they hurled their insults at Jesus, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. So he never returned an insult for an insult. Just let this sink in. He never got defensive and went on the attack. And I know people are thinking, yeah, but he's Jesus and I'm not. I get it. I'm with you on that. He never got defensive and went on the attack. Now, he called people out, religious people most especially, but he blessed those who persecuted him. Those who were his enemies, he forgave. Jesus was gentle. Dallas Willard writes and puts it this way, and this is on the screen or in the app if you want to follow along. He says, the means of our communication needs to be gentle because gentleness also characterizes the subject of our communication. What we're seeking to defend or explain is Jesus himself, who is a gentle, loving shepherd. If we are not gentle in how we present the good news, how will people encounter the gentle and loving Messiah we want to point to? This is a brilliant insight. If we are seeking to point people to Jesus, then we have to possess the character he has. And in the context of today, what he's saying is, is that the way we communicate, the way we interact and respond needs to be gentle because the one we're trying to communicate, as he says in Matthew 28 or 27, is gentle. So when we embody gentleness in response to division, individual level or larger level, when we respond or embody gentleness in response to conflict and disagreement, we show who God is and the new and better way he is inviting us to live. And I'm going to say this again. Gentleness is not a trait that everyone holds in high regard or that everyone desires. There's a lot of negotiation around gentleness. And I just, again, want to encourage us to sit in this. And this is just coming from enough conversations where I'll hear people, they'll dismiss it and they'll say, I'm not like that. Or it'll get dismissed by saying, you know what, that's for that group over there, but not for me. And all this probably means when we say, you know, I'm not like that, it's that that's not how I was born. I'm not inclined toward that. So therefore, I'm not held to that. Or it gets dismissed because it doesn't work. Which probably means it doesn't change people's minds so that they think the way we think. And therefore, we think it isn't useful. 
Or we put limits on gentleness. I'll go this far, but no further. And I always want to qualify it about this point to those, for those situations where there's any kind of abuse or violence in a home or wherever, the answer is to leave. But outside of that, we must simply develop a level of self-awareness that's able to detect our agenda hiding behind most of these rationalizations. And that's the point where we invite the Spirit of God to come and to change us. It's, I'm not like that. It doesn't work. Do we invite God into that? I've shared this story before. It's one of those moments in my life that imprinted itself on my soul. It bothered me then. It bothers me more as I stand in front of you today. Some years ago, I heard a pastor work himself into a heated lather in front of a group of men. And he kept saying, and I quote him here, I don't want a Jesus I can beat up. And he talked about Jesus' swagger and his toughness and how he took, quote, nothing from no one. And so that's how we should be. And I was going to say, the guy was just dead wrong. Jesus was tough. But his toughness was mostly on display through his gentleness. So lastly, let's talk about practicing gentleness. I've sat with a lot of people over the years, maybe you have as well, who are in the midst of severe trial of one kind or another. Across a table, in my office, somewhere on this campus, somewhere out in the community, sitting with people who are in the midst of some sort of severe trial, and they're talking about it, they're sharing it with me. And some of those trials are self-inflicted. People made bad and sinful choices, and the fallout is tragic. Some of those trials are causing people to question their faith and question all kinds of things about Christianity. They're struggling with it. I've sat with those who are struggling to accept some part of the Christian life because it doesn't match up with what they think. It doesn't match up with what they feel. It doesn't match up with what they want. And right there, as I'm talking with them, they are living in a way, and they're open about this, that does not align with what it seems like the Bible says. And in any of those situations, if you've been there, it's one thing to talk about how we feel about those subjects when there's no person there. It's one thing to talk about our perspective or our stance or our view when there's no person there. And in any of those situations that I just mentioned, where I was sitting with a person who was telling me those things or sharing that part of their life with me, if they'd met me 15 years ago or 20 years ago or 25 or 30, they might have gotten fury from me in response to whatever their situation was. But no more. There's something about face-to-face. There's something about when you hear somebody tell you about their struggle in some arena that if you weren't with a person, you might have all sorts of opinions and convictions and advice about. It's different when you sit with someone. The conviction's still there. But I've been shaped myself by verses like Galatians 6.1, the Apostle Paul, when he said, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. 
I've been shaped by passages like 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25. I would encourage you to learn this one. Paul is writing to his young friend and fellow minister, Timothy, and he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Then here's the line. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. This is an astounding instruction. Powerful words. And part of what makes them powerful is they remind us of our job. To do what we do with gentleness. Be in those conversations, but be in them with gentleness. So that's our job. And they remind us of God's job, which is to change people, including us. And trouble starts, as you well know, when we fire God and try to do his job. Our job is to be a gentle presence in this broken world. His job is to change and heal this broken world. So, what does it look like for us to clothe ourselves with gentleness, as Colossians 3 says? What does it look like to cultivate this character quality? If it's not just about trying really hard, how do we learn this? How do we cooperate with the Spirit in this? I have three quick suggestions. The first is to listen first. James chapter 1 and verse 19, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. The genius of gentleness is found in verses like this, which if we could actually internalize and live this out, we would spare ourselves and everybody else a whole lot of headache. This is a perfect prescription for practicing gentleness. Listen first. Take your time to speak and keep pumping the brakes on anger. And yet this is almost the direct opposite approach. We often take intense situations or disagreements because we often are quick to anger. We're quick to speak when we're angry and we're really slow to listen. And we've all seen the carnage this creates. Imagine how it would be dramatically different Family dynamic, marriage dynamic, out in the community, someone that we're running into, someone at work we have a problem with. Imagine how it would be dramatically different if we were quick to listen to the other person's perspective and story. Simply because more than anything, we wanted to understand them. It's a good starting point for cultivating gentleness. Another suggestion is to starve defensiveness. This may be the most critical of all. Starve defensiveness. Don't cooperate with it. A crucial part of this transformation journey is learning to recognize what one writer calls ego status injuries, right as they happen. An ego status injury. You know what this is like. Someone says someone, someone does something, they don't say something, or they don't do something, and it nicks our ego, and the defensiveness starts to rise, or face gets red, or blood pressure rises, we're starting to get fidgety, and we're starting to manufacture our attack that's going to come with our mouth. And this suggestion is right in that moment, as that is happening, 
This is where we have to learn to notice it. Wait a second. I'm going down that road. We notice it, and then we starve the defensiveness. We don't cooperate with it. And in that moment, we invite God's Spirit to be there with us. Abandonment of all defensiveness, a phrase from one author, is an indicator of inner transformation that is reshaping relationships. Think about that. As defensiveness decreases, relationships are being changed. See, our defensiveness is an unreliable source. It presents itself to us like it tells us the truth. It doesn't tell us the truth. Don't trust it because it produces retaliation more often than not. So very simply, this idea of starving defensiveness comes to notice it, surrender it. Notice it. Here it is. It's rising. I can feel it. Surrender it. And the last suggestion is taken straight from a verse in Philippians. Rejoice, for God is near. See, living each moment with an awareness of God's nearness can convert defensiveness and harshness into gentleness. So someone in the church got wind of the fact that, just, I mean, it doesn't take like a PhD to go, well, I bet this week they're going to talk about gentleness, given what we've talked about the previous weeks. So someone saw this coming, and they sent an email to me regarding their own struggle with gentleness, their own battle with it. So Dana's going to come. It's not Dana's story, but Dana's going to come, and she's going to read this story on behalf of this person who could not be here. I'm not sure why I feel the need to share this, but in light of gentleness being the theme next week, I thought I would share how gentleness has rocked my world in the last month. Philippians 4, 4 4-7 has always been a favorite verse of mine. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Was on my grandmother's wall. When she passed away, I took the piece of art and put it in my house. Over the last 10 years, I have reduced it to just the word rejoice but I look at it frequently as it sits next to a framed picture of my kids in our dining area. I am also someone who has never been described as gentle. And all these years, I never noticed that the words right after rejoice are, let your gentleness be seen by all. The Lord is near. I always skipped right to, don't be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, present your request to the Lord. That is something I understood. I've loved prayer since I was 16. I thought that it was through this prayer that I would find joy, that I would be able to rejoice. But when I realized this last month, but what I realized this last month is that I had it all backwards. Rejoice first. Paul had to say it again because it's so important. Through rejoicing, I am claiming that God is near. If God is near, then I can be gentle. My directness, my foolishness, my anger comes out when I'm fearful, defensive, feeling unappreciated, therefore needing to control my environment and others. But if God is near, if I can rejoice in all circumstances, then I can be gentle. I'm not alone. It's no longer up to me. I don't have to grab for control. So I started a practice where I verbally proclaim that I am rejoicing for each new task or situation I'm in. 
Instead of our normal prayer at dinner, I'm asking the kids to rejoice in something ordinary they did that day. I haven't yet seen a miraculous turnaround. I don't know when this is going to play out in my life, but I can't wait for it to. I'm really confident that if we saw Jesus for who he was, we'd run as fast as we could. I know the image gets messed up because those of us who profess to follow him don't always do such a good job of it. But I am really convinced if we could see him, if we could get past the barriers that get in the way, get past all the religious nonsense that has tried to substitute for the real thing, we would run to him. You think about it, Jesus got himself in some pretty big trouble, not because he yelled at the people that everyone thought he should yell at, not because he condemned people everyone thought he should condemn. He got in trouble because he loved with a gentleness no one had ever seen before and could not fathom that this could be God. This pandemic has been really hard on most of us. And one of the ways it's been hard, maybe for you, is it creates this distance, this sense of being away from God for some reason. Could be that you feel closer to him, but it could be you feel further away. This song Manuel sang, this Jesus drawing us with gentleness, I just want to present that back to you. This is who he is. You've not done too much for him to write you off. He's not a screamer. He does not grab by the back of the neck and shove our nose in the things we've done that we shouldn't have done. He does not do that. The life he has for us is so brilliantly better than a life of sin and disobedience and defiance that it stands on its own and he invites us to it. So Jesus, we exalt you today as the one who shows us who God is and what life is like, what life can be like. And we continue to pray that these things that rattle around in our minds and in our hearts that keep us from a clear and true picture of who you are, that you, by your Holy Spirit, would clear those things out and continue to draw us to yourself. And we pray this in your name. Amen.